Tell me, Steve, after the Yellowstone business, Queeg came to you guys for help and you turned him down, didn't you? Yes, we did. You didn't approve his conduct as an officer. He wasn't worthy of your loyalty. So you turned on him. You ragged him. You made up songs about him. If you'd given Queeg the loyalty he needed, do you suppose the whole issue would have come up in the typhoon? You're an honest man, Steve. I'm asking you. Do you think it would have been necessary for you to take over? It probably wouldn't have been necessary. Yeah. If that's true, then we were guilty. Ah, you're learning, Willie. You're learning that you don't work with the captain because you like the way he parts his hair. You work with him because he's got the job or you're no good. Hello, listening people. Hello. You're listening to... Two of us. We already covered... Yeah, I was about to say. (laughs) Spit and Polish (laughs) presents, I am one of your hosts, the Ryan Stolinski. And I am generic Bartek. No, you're off... You're off-brand Bartek. (laughs) There's a Polish actor whose name is like Bartłomiej Kaspszykowski. It's like almost exactly my name. Are you going to recommend a movie with them in it one day? So that we can (laughs) high-five and go, yes! I can look up his filmography. He's he's a Polish actor. Yep. Well, I mean, will we really get to appreciate his acting if we get the English lector to do it? (laughs) So that we can pay favour to the Polish cinema. The the fabled uh, English lector? Yeah, called me if you give me enough time and energy in a translation. I'll fucking do it. Because you need the energy, Ryan. (laughs) I need the focus to do it. Because famously, Polish cinema has a thing called a lector, which is an elderly old man at this... He must be fucking old at this point. He must be, yeah. Who's this monotone man who 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 talks over the film, yet the film's audio is still intact, but slightly lower. Yeah, and to be specific, the talking over the film is him translating the lines. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And But he only does it... Oh, he doesn't do it with Polish films, of course, right? Well, why would he? Well, he's a busy man. He might <laughs> want to do it anyway. <laughs> Just Polish lector for a Polish film? Yeah, exactly. Why not? <laughs> and uh, so that's the Polish side of our Spit and Polish show. And now we are doing the spitting side where we're spitting facts about movies that we have covered and will be covering. Because we may refer back to some movies in this discussion. Who knows? We are talking about a movie that has come recommended. I recommended this film. Next recommendation will be Bartex. And the one before this was Listening People's Yours. So that's the process. We recommend movies. We cover movies. There's a whole entire cycle to it. Yes. (laughs) Yes, student Bartek. Are you joking? What? Yours is next. You said that you recommended this one and last week was Listening People. Oh, fuck. I, you know what? (laughs) Forget it. (laughs) Forget it. Ryan made a boo-boo. Last week was his recommendation. This week is a listening people's recommendation. It was too spooky last week. (laughs) I couldn't handle the heart and souls of Robert Downey Jr. If if I'm remembering right, it was your parents who recommended this one, right? Sorry, mum and father. And so we are covering the Kane Mutiny from which year was it? 1954, I think. Starring Humphrey Bogart, Fred McMurray, uh, Van Johnson. Jose Ferrer, of course. Jose Ferrer and uh, lead man. Lead guy. You know, guy. Yeah, his name was like Richard something. Richard Cunningham. (laughs) 
Robert Francis. Robert, Fr- oh, he has two first names. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that is the movie. If you have not seen this film before, we recommend you watch it because we will be detail. We will be spoiling it, going into the details, discussing it. The Kane Mutiny is a film about a mutiny on the Kane. So off you go. And yes, Michael Kane used this film as a way of using a new last name because he joined an actors guild and couldn't use his real name because his real name's silly. What's his real name? Um, Maurice Wickle, Micklewhite, I think. Yes, and I think he's told stories about when he goes to airports and whatever, and people like think it's a fake. Like uh, I've heard him on thing because he he's like you're clearly Michael Caine. It's like yeah, but that's not my real name. It's like well, this isn't <laughs> this isn't. <laughs> I know he was on a talk show once where he was talking about how he was at a party and people kept calling him Michael Caine, and they thought that that, that he was being called Mike Cocaine. It's mm-hmm. so, like he was a drug dealer or something. Yes, so we are talking Kane Mutiny. What's your history with this feature film, Bartek? I had heard the trivia about Michael Caine's name. Anything else? No, that's it. <laughs> Did you know anything about the film going in? Like, anything at all other than that fact? Um, Well, based on the word mutiny, I figured that it would be on a ship or something like that that has a crew. Other than that, really nothing. Is a mutiny only a thing that takes place on a ship? I'm sure anything that has a crew can have a mutiny with, like, a leader and, you know, f- people working for them, but this was, like, the traditional thing of, like, oh, they're, yeah. on, they're on a submarine or a ship or something. So, you gathered that, you knew Humphrey Bogart was in it, mm-hmm. I told you that. Are you that familiar with Humphrey Bogart? Uh, well, familiar with his legacy, and I think I may have seen one or two films of his, but not- Casablanca? Casablanca, one of them, for sure. Maltese Falcon? I haven't seen that one. Um, I'm sure there's some other one that I have seen him in, but not as much as, you know, everyone who likes cinema has seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And so I have seen this film before. Obviously, my parents recommended it. I've seen this film before. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I've seen it a couple of times. It's an interesting Humphrey Bogart film. I am a fan of Humphrey Bogart. I've watched a few of his Films, uh, a good a good amount of them, and he has a few like this, mo- more notably The Treasure of Sierra Madre, where it is him playing unscrewed, weirdo, crazy, uh, not, not villainous, I guess, is not the correct word, more so in Treasure of Sierra Madre, but... Against people, type. Against the usual, I'm smoking a cigarette, and I'm kind of a sexy charismatic yeah. rogue who he, says the right thing at the right time and he's I have like a real an, nonchalant energy to he, me. He's an iconic element of film noir. That's a big thing that I've known He for. played Sam Spade. He played the Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon, yeah. And uh, this is against type for him. And so I, I always remember it because of that. And I remember it because he's the best performance in the entire film. Uh, we may have a conversation about that, perhaps, but to me, he stands out as being cl- the clear winner of the movie, and every time he isn't in the movie, you miss you miss him. You want him back. You're like, please come back. <laughs> please. Maybe that's just me being a Bogart fan. Uh, but I've seen this film a few times, and overall, I've enjoyed it. It's not a personal favorite Bogart movie for me. Mm-hmm. It's not a favorite movie of this era for me, but it is one that fascinates me. It's a very fascinating movie. Uh, I find it intriguing. I like the pitch of the movie, which, of course, 
the pitch of it is there's a ship in World War II called the Kane, which is a run-down, beat-up, old, piece-of-shit ship. Part of the Navy, but its job is just to sweep up mines, and it's, like, rarely ever done that. And its old running captain has finally been released of uh, service on it, and they've replaced him, brought in an old war horse who's served for many years and seen a lot of shit, and he's clearly shaken up from the shit he's seen and encountered and managed. And he's in charge, but he's he's crazy, or is he? Mm. And then the crew turn on him, and a mutiny takes place. And when the mutiny is said, it's not as if it's a violent insurrection. It is mm. as simple as, sir, we're relieving you of duty. And he goes, you can't do that. And then courtroom scenes happen after that event yeah, takes yeah. place. Very, very much in legal territory, mutiny happened. Did you appreciate that aspect, or did you find that a bit disappointing? When you, when you hear that this is a movie about a mutiny, were you expecting that glorified version of a mutiny where there's a big turnover, where they have to violently or any of that? Or were you satisfied with how formal it was um i guess i'm in the middle like when i heard when i heard when i thought that there was going to be a mutiny i did think it would be a bit more of a loud affair on the part of like the entire crew um but it was more of a you know like heat of the moment you know the conflict that they're currently in is really loud and they have to make a snap decision kind of thing Mm. it was certainly more interesting than my you know go-to idea of what the mutiny was going to be yeah um and to that extent yeah it was it was a little less exciting than i was hoping for but still it 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 had a much bigger build-up to it than i was expecting like walking into this film blind i thought it would happen you know halfway into the film maybe (laughs) a third of the way through but it's really like you know last fifth of the film so let's talk about what you thought about the movie. As you kind of said, you didn't really know much. You had some basic understandings. What was it like watching this? I think like you, I walked out, you know, thinking the film was interesting. I didn't hate it. I actually quite liked it. Um, you know, it had a, I liked the score of it. You know, you hear that theme <laughs> quite a lot throughout the film, but it has you know, this kind of energy to it while still feeling you know, militaristic, Navy-ish. Um, and 1940s Nineteen 1940s. And even, even though this is a 50s film. Yeah, and even though, set in the war, but made in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though a lot of it is just, you know, shots of the ship or people just talking, stuff like that, the score really kind of lends it that energy. Yeah. That I really liked. Um, I, I struggle a little bit to di- differentiate some of the characters because, you know, they're all white guys wearing the same uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, by the end I was fine with it. There's primarily four you have to remember. That's exactly what I was going to say next. they're very distinctively marked. One of them is the noble guy who's the new guy on the ship. There's Fred McMurray, who's the slimy guy who's like, I'm a writer and I'm writing and I'm not a psychologist. I never said to be. And then there's the second in charge with the scars on his face. Yeah, and then there's Merrick, Queek. I think. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Queek. Yeah, with those three, the only confusing part was one of them is Keith and the other's Kiefer. So it was like, mm-hmm. uh, yes, Kiefer, Kiefer, when they mentioned the names. Mm. Um, yeah, really just focusing on those four is all you really need. Yeah, and then in the final act, Jose Ferrer as uh, the lawyer. He's a big he's a big player in the final act of it. I loved his performance. <laughs> I, I, we'll have to wait to get to him because he's, he's at the end. But he was great. He had one of my favorite lines ever in a movie, which is, it sounds like something Winston Churchill would say, and I think you know what I'm going to talk about, which is, he's, uh, he's something along the lines of, 
I'm I'm fairly drunk, which should make it a like I'm I'm pretty drunk, which would make it a fair fight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which was an amazing bowler line from an absolute unit of a man. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, I This is a movie that I think is a great film struggling to come out of the confines of the times mm-hmm. and the confines of being a film. And what I mean by that aspect of it being a film is it has the issues we've talked about many of the times in, in our discussions where there are some stories that don't need the typical script thing. Here's the girl, because there has to be a girl in a movie, or here's the plucky protagonist man who's absolutely flawless, but he slightly gets corrupt. Don't need that. Or even we need to have, uh, we need to wait for Queeg as long as we do. I, I would have loved him a bit earlier. There are those aspects. And then of the times, this is a movie that suffers from being a film made in the 1950s, made as a promotional material for war and for the Navy. When the film ended, there was a feeling of like, hmm, I wonder if this was meddled with in any way. Or even just that is how films are made. Mm. Back then, You, if you want military or naval support in your movie, you have to make a movie that supports them. Yeah. And so it struggles in that regard. I always wonder what this movie would be like if it wasn't confined by those aspects. If this movie was allowed to be grittier. If this movie was allowed to damn and uh, make commentary stronger on the effects of war and on the effects of military structures and how those dynamics aren't necessarily healthy for normal human interactions. Mm. Uh, But it doesn't get the chance to do that. But you can tell, right? You can tell that is just underneath this sheen of 1950s Hollywood that's trying to wash it away. Yeah, when, when I was reading the trivia and they mentioned the point of like, uh, the specifics of what is happening in Europe is never actually mentioned in this film. Mm-hmm. It was like an interesting thing of like, oh, that's actually true. And a lot right. of other trivia points we're talking about, because this is based on a novel, it's a film mm-hmm. adaptation. Um, Who, also- by the way, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, the writer of said novel only died like- Two and a half years ago. And he was like 104 J- years almost, old. Almost 104, yeah. Fuck me. That's great. And one of the other actors- was in there only died this year uh, the the lady the, oh, the girl really she was 93 or 4 okay she died earlier this year like in march so some of the cast and crew of this movie from what 70 years ago yeah is still around <laughs> i was going to say that's cool but that's interesting is probably more appropriate yes so you're going to say it's based on a novel uh yeah based on a novel that was also apparently a play mm-hmm. that was pretty popular so there was a lot of pressure for the film to do well um yeah a lot of things were taken away from what was in the novel and in the trivia they talk about it a lot of it um especially with uh I almost called him Miguel, Jose Ferrer's character. Yeah. Um, that would have given a bit more depth in his brief role in the film. Mm. Um, more time, more energy. Yeah. A lot of things for this film, like when I finished watching it, it was fine. And then in reading up about it afterwards, in retrospect, I can see a lot of, you know, points where, okay, there are things that were taken away from here. Or this would have had more focus. Yeah. And it is, it's an adaptation. Yeah. And it shows it's an adaptation because even before you read the trivia, 
you can kind of feel like this needs to be longer. Mm-hmm. Didn't it? Like, to me, this is a movie that I'm shocked isn't one of those old movies that's nearly three hours long. Yeah, well, apparently, like, a whole hour was taken out, 50 pages of script or something and like that. And that's incredible because the movie still works, but you can feel some of the missing elements are here, especially when you get to that moment where it's like a montage of all these crazy things Queeg has been up to, and they just kind of plow through it until they oh, get to is, the strawberries. Is that when, um, what's-his-face is writing his log? Yeah. Yeah. And that feels Merrick. like we're just cutting stuff out and having to rush through it because mm. that was like a really quick escalation of uh, one of our main characters' mental state deteriorating. It's like, well, isn't that the point of the movie? Yeah, it would. It felt <laughs> like it was like a comedy montage of like, this wacky thing happened, then this wacky yeah. thing. But it wasn't like comedy situations. It was just like, ooh, look how serious and this is. And that's another element, I think, that's a problem of the era that this movie takes place, that this film was made in, of the big budget Hollywood, is sometimes, especially with a war movie or movie set in war, they, they, they pull back the punches this movie has the potential to be a lot grittier and a lot more brutal and a lot more sad than it actually is. The movie has a happy ending, for fuck's sake. And of course it has a happy ending, because it's a movie made in this era of Hollywood. And that's another strike against it when I watch it. And then there's the girl. Can we talk about the girl who plays herself? Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Did you know that she plays herself in the movie? Uh, that's, well, my understanding was that her character in the film has a real name and then she has her stage name. Yeah, but that's and then just the, her. And then the woman in real life used that stage name for the rest of her career. So that's just her though. Like, cause she was a singer dancer lady and then it's just crazy. And that's another side effect of the times of we've got to have a song in there. We have to have a song in there. Right, like in right. the first five minutes, you got a song so we can sell it. That's how these movies work. These are the... These are the cogs and gears of these older movies. Well, and it continues kind of into Roborex, if our discussion on that was accurate. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, those are my issues. And I didn't mean to go straight into issues, but this is what they also fascinate me. I think this is a movie where I watch it and I see a great film that's 70, 75% of the way there. Mm. And, that, and that remaining percentage gets me to think about this other project, this other version of this movie, or how you could adapt this into something nowadays and make it work even better. But it's also like, how do you replace Humphrey Bogart? Somebody that they didn't want to initially cast in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. I'm pretty much on the same page. And just with the added thing of like, when I was reading about some of the things that they took out, especially um, Jose Ferrer's final speech, like the things that he brought up, because his character Mm. was meant to be like specifically a Jewish Mm -hmm. American character. Um, that stuff hit me really hard. Like, oh my God, that would have been, you know, as angry as he was in that final scene, like Mm. that stuff would have elevated it even more. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I like the K-Mutiny a lot. I think it's a very fascinating project that is burdened by movie stuff as well. I would love to see this redone. Interesting, yeah. Big actors nowadays, even if it's a miniseries, perhaps you could easily do that. I think it works. I think here's another weakness, and I, I, I wonder what you think of this. I've never liked the fact that this movie's in color. I've always thought this movie deserves to be one shot in black and white and made to be in black and white. I, 
I don't like the color palette of this movie at all, and I, I always think that it would have been a far more effective film if it was shot in black and white and given that moody lighting that naturally comes with shooting in that. What do you think about that notion? When the film started and it was in colour, that did throw me off for a bit, because I guess I just walked in expecting it to be in black and white. Have you ever seen Humphrey Bogart in colour? That was one big thing too. Like, again, I haven't seen too much of him, but the one thing I do remember, Casablanca definitely wasn't in colour. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, yeah, it was interesting. It it didn't bother me that it was in colour, but maybe it could have worked either way. I guess I, I, guess I didn't really like the brown and grey colour palette of the movie. There were certain colours that were very prominent, especially with, like their uniforms. It's just a thing. It doesn't really affect the movie, but there are some shots that really work well in color, like the sequence in the typhoon and the red light on their faces. That works really well. I wish there was more shots like that. Mm. A lot of this movie takes place in the daytime as well. And yeah. so I think the color during that is just, it's very vibrant for a movie that subject matter isn't vibrant. Like there is this element, right? Where you're halfway through the film and you're supposed to feel the oppression of the cane. And yet the color of the movie's so vibrant. But you do have that one scene that has a bunch of stock footage of like the thing they're shooting. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, that's kind of more the look that you were going for. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say though, with the, the whole idea with the cane and the oppression, um, I did like that even though you get a lot of shots of what the ship looks like overall and it's this, oh, this is such a big ship. When you have the scenes that are on the ship, the camera there, it does feel very cramped. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, As these ships do. Yeah, that felt, you know, very real. And especially in contrast to when they were on that really big, you know, sea Mm. aircraft liner thing. Yeah. Oh, look how massive this is. Now, this is a Navy thing. Oh, and that's a part of the movie is to sell you on the Navy. Yeah. Look at our cool ships. Look at this. Look how disciplined the guys on the big ship are. Yeah, they don't wear their shirt tails tucked out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They they keep them tucked in. They don't... (laughs) We've got to talk about the great thing of the movie, and I hope you agree. Bogart, pretty great. Pretty good, pretty good. Just good? <laughs> he was great. What did you think? Because, as I stated, this is a different type of performance for him, and you aren't that familiar, but you are familiar with his persona. Oh, yeah. It's just something to know. This isn't that. Immediately, it isn't that. He's never. He never comes across as cool. Yeah, it actually took me a few minutes to realize, oh, wait, this is Bogart. Mm-hmm. The little man. <laughs> the little man who's very... not Twitch, ti- he's not He's not timid, but he... He, he doesn't... Isn't, isn't he? <laughs> he doesn't feel strong. No. I guess, yeah. He feels frail. <laughs> yeah, he and he has a lot of... A lot of chances in the film to show that off in many different ways. Like, he's got his you know, charismatic opening mm-hmm. speech to everyone where he's, you know, trying to get along with them. Um, and then he just has all, he has that one line where it's like, there are four ways to do it. The, the, <laughs> the good way, the bad way, my way, or the Navy way. And that line just stuck with me. I'm like, so what's the good and Navy way? And why do you hate those? <laughs> because they're not his way. They're not his way. It. Yeah. And there are all these little elements. It kind of reminded me of burning in a lot of ways where, mm. You know, at the end of the film, you're kind of presented with this question of like, so were were the crew right? Because along the way, you were probably sympathizing with them in a lot of ways, but now all of these elements are getting brought up to make you think. That's why I love the movie. Mm, Because we we'll get there. That we that's a big topic. I wanted to keep talking about Bogart first. Yes, yes, for sure. I really appreciate the fact that they weren't afraid to use his height in the movie because in most movies. 
they wouldn't. Like in Casablanca, famously, a lot of the behind the scenes is him standing on milk crates and her kneeling because she was so much taller than him. And That's it, right, I forgot about and that. And so, and you know, he would have to be sitting in that movie and so on and so forth. And the only characters bigger than him would be Sidney Greenstreet, who's like a big guy, and all of them they pair him up with Peter Laurie, who's smaller than him. I really appreciate the fact they weren't afraid to show how little he was, because it added to the frailty of the man. It added to this... He does have this insecure nature to him. I mean, he has his Freudian thing where he plays with little metal balls. and mm, Yeah, the, the boating balls, I think they're called. Yeah, yeah, and and that kind of stuff. And I I liked how... When he was barking orders at people, Humphrey Bogart usually has such a presence of sometimes menace, intimidation, charisma, charm. And here he is, and he's doing the military jarhead thing where he's yelling orders and this and this. But at no point do, at least do I, in the movie, ever feel the actual intimidation he, the character, thinks he's bestowing upon these men. And that's kind of where his command fails instantly, because he's yelling at these guys about the most inane things possible, and Bogart being this little guy, barking up at these people in the middle of the mo- a much more important thing, as to this sense that he is going to be a failure of a leader, and Bogart is delivering this energy really well of making it perfectly clear that the character believes that they're being this rigid i'm in control i'm fully with it but also enough for the audience to know that he's not really yeah especially since lately i've been doing a lot of teaching stuff and obviously i've got to have a bit of authority over some kids um there were little elements of the film that i was kind of judging from like a teaching perspective mm-hmm. the the scene where he was getting everyone to wear the helmets especially was a big <laughs> one where he made the announcement of like okay anyone who's caught not wearing a helmet you know you're going to get in trouble literally just yesterday i was telling kid you have to wear masks or else the teachers are going to get you in trouble mm-hmm. um and he had that whole thing of like as soon as he made the announcement he ran out to see like oh who's not wearing a mask who's scrambling to put it on helmet yeah yeah uh, so, of course sorry <laughs> i'm too covid focused um who's putting on a helmet and who's not wearing it and me as a teacher i'm thinking like okay well if you're seeing people putting on helmets that means that your message is working and you can, you know you can look past it because they're doing it now but he was really, like, focused on, like, oh, I'm, I'm actually going to catch them. Yep. It's like, dude, you, you, you've kind of already won by getting them to put on the helmet. You can let it go. But at this point, but in all fairness, at that point in the story, they had fucked with him a lot by then. Yeah. So the tolerance for that was much lower. And you know this as a teacher. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But like, The when- prolonged effect of the defiance, even if they are following the rules that you're setting for them, you... You can't, some people can't help but just want to do what he does in the movie where it's like, yeah. don't you fucking trick me. I know exactly what you're doing. You think you're being fucking clever with this. Well, I'm cleverer than you. I'm in charge. You interrupted me, but that's basically what I was going to say. Yeah, like at this point, he's he's really trying to force his, you know, charge on them. Like when he's making the boat go in a 360 degree angle after he's proven that he's a much better leader than the previous captain by having done this quicker Mm. but then he fucks it up because he cuts the tow line how did you feel about not only when he was actually barking at them and not paying attention being on the uh, 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 about the shirts and whatnot because even that 
you don't take him that seriously in the scene because it's such an inane thing to be bullying about. But like I said, Bogart does the levels really well. But how did you feel about when he was confronted by the fact that the toe line had been cut and it was his fault and he reacted to it like, who said that? No, the toe line hasn't been cut. Then he immediately goes into a lie after presenting for the last like five, ten minutes that he's all about the books and being by the books. Yeah, it's it's him. He introduced himself as being a guy with no grey zones. It's, you know, black and white, good or bad. (laughs) And then here he is like immediately showing that like, no, well, when he's under hot water, he's going to go into the grey zone. And that's his character. He's a grey character, yet he presents himself as if he isn't. It's all his geometric logic, as he calls it later in the movie. He does, yeah. <laughs> and then he realises, oh, fuck, Anytime he gets in trouble, it's never his fault. It's always his disloyal officers. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one of the big things in this film that's, like, you know, a sign of him, you know, being incompetent, has the name, like, The Strawberry Incident or something yes. like that. Yes, yes, yes. Like, just, just the fact that the word strawberry is in the name. That is one of the funny funny and sad moments in the movie, is the whole strawberry thing. Like, one of its legacies, I actually looked this up on the internet, I was like, what are modern people saying about this movie? No joke, <laughs> I found. I think it was on Tumblr or Reddit, somebody made a video, and it has, like, ten likes or something, and it's like... I don't even know how to describe it. Somebody's like <laughs> edited together Humphrey Bogart in this movie and they're like my short strawberry king. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like him flipping about flipping out about strawberries and being little. Like it's a compilation of those <laughs> things. And it's like in a way that's what people remember yeah. is what undoes him is strawberries. And there is that whole line that um Kiefer has where he's like he's trying to relive the glory of his days which was the cheese incident or something like that <laughs> it's like this this guy thinks that strawberries and cheese are the biggest the things. great cheese case <laughs> yeah, yeah that's it <laughs> I, uh, but he's but he's right that's the thing that is so great about Queeg is sometimes he isn't right but sometimes he's fucking right and that's what makes it really complex with his character and they wind him up but humphrey bogart playing a, a, a like, could how long did it take? I mean, you said it took you a little while to even really for be like, that's Humphrey Bogart. But once you did, did you buy into it pretty easily that this is the type of character he plays since it's so against type of the persona that he's forever cemented as being this, if you could say, an archetypical Hollywood persona. Hmm. He's one of the images of a Hollywood leading man. And here he is going completely against that. I mean, one, he's not the leading man for a start. The credits will have you believe otherwise, but yeah. I mean, he's in the movie a lot, so is, that yeah. <laughs> is something. He's in it more than her- Jose Ferrer, who's second build. Um, yep. But what did you think? Like, seeing him play against type, did you buy it? How long did it take you? And how do you feel about seeing an actor who's often considered to be just himself or just this image going against that? I like that for the beginning couple of minutes that we did see him, he was this kind of authority figure who you know he was still just talking at this point but it was introducing that he's different to that last guy who was captain who i think that guy got a nomination academy award for this for that he was really good in the movie he was but i almost forgot his uh, he was in that then he came back at the end he came back at the end for the happy ending there's almost a uh, just to interrupt for a second with him Mm -hmm. there's almost this fairy tale like moment of when he leaves the ship and he's like waving goodbye and the music plays and it's almost like 
the closing of the fairy tale story and it and it it's kind of ominous when you know where the movie's going to go it's like oh we're saying goodbye to the guy who's actually pretty good we we neglected how good he was even other characters say like you don't know what a great man that guy was he's like are you happy that i'm leaving yes sir <laughs> <laughs> but you were saying about boga um yeah so during the beginning few minutes where he's explaining who he is and it's still all talk not showing yet um this is roughly where i didn't know it was bogart yet um, I did like this build-up. It's the possibility of, okay, okay, where's this film going to go? Because we've established that this ship is, you know, not all that great. We've established that the crew isn't that great. we established that the leader understood that and kind of kept that going along. So obviously there's going to be a change and that's going to lead to the mutiny. Um, and we have this guy who seems very prim and proper. There's a lot of potential for where this can go. Mm-hmm. And then obviously when we had... I forget what the very first incident was. I think it was the 360 yeah, thing the and, and the, hey, why isn't this guy's shirt tucked in? It's like, I can't, mm. you know, have everyone on the ship. I, I don't know everyone. Um, I did like that turn and I did like that that kind of led into, you know, what this character really is. We we had this framework set up and we're already going against it. You could argue as well in terms of retrospect for yourself because this is your first time viewing. Mm-hmm. The real tipping off point of what his character is is when he grabs those balls out of his pocket and starts starts wringing them through his hand. Because isn't that an interesting character tick and trait to give him? Think about it. Like he's presenting himself like I'm all together. I'm clearly with it. I'm really in charge. And then when something irks him, he grabs these out, and you can't help but notice that everyone in the room notices it. Because it's very unique and it makes that noise and all it does is telegraph his insecurity. Because it's a coping mechanism. It's an obvious coping mechanism. Yeah, when that happened, I, I, I'm i familiar with the, what those are. It's like good for your hand dexterity. So at first it was kind of like, oh, he's, you know, being a healthy guy. Um, but then when it was clear that it became like a tick for coping, then yeah. And obviously I've already said the line about, you know, the, the four ways of doing things mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and good and navy way are not the ways to do it with under my command. So All bad. Yeah. I, I personally love too when the guy walks in and gives him the thing and then he's like, Did anyone notice? What was wrong? And he asked the guy his oh, name yeah, and rank, yeah. like, Did anyone notice? And he goes through like the shirt tail thing. That's gonna be one of the first things to change. Do we have a morale officer? We don't. You, you're the morale officer. You, your one job, de facto main character. <laughs> your one job is to do this thing. <laughs> your one job, and we already know at this point that that guy's a fuck up because the previous captain chewed him out for not giving him this important notice <laughs> earlier, which was nice. It's like, oh great, you're gonna fuck up this shirt thing, which is an innocuous thing, but he does. You could argue he does fuck it up. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I have a heat rash. <laughs> that was the guy's defense for not tucking in his shirt. It was, I have a heat rash. Um, Bogart is so fucking good. And it's one of those performances where the longer it goes on, the more nuanced you realize it is. Because like you say, at first he comes across like, Okay, he's playing the military guy, and then you learn, oh, there's a little bit of frailty here. And you see he's coming apart, and he's becoming more and more unstable and more and more tyrannical. And then at the very end, he's just this broken man. They've completely, utterly broken him. And even before then, him walking in with absolute confidence, and he's like, hello, fellas. And he's sitting in the chair, and he's got this absolute swagger, and he's got that Bogart-isms where he's just like... Well, like, you know, I can't say for sure. He's so super confident. But once they start cracking him, he gets, he, he becomes unhinged. And 
it is the most notable performance in the movie because of all those nuances and layers that we learn more about him throughout the film. I think the second best performance to me is uh, Fred McMurray as uh, Kiefer. Mm-hmm. He's a character that you you don't know what he's about straight away, but you quickly learn it, and then by the end, you're like, "What a big piece of shit!" <laughs> with with Bogart, I do like that a lot of points in the film he's got like a, a different peaks and drops yeah. in terms of like his reputation or like you know his credibility. So like when he when they're still on the ship and he has that scene where he's like kind of really like kind of weak and timid and like asking guys look please you know be with me help me help me <laughs> please be my crew <laughs> please be my crew and there is this sense of like oh yeah this guy isn't as you know le- as much a leader as he thought he is and you're kind of on the crew side and then later on in the film when you've got when you're at the majority of the trial and they're like talking him up it almost feels like that whole burning thing of like hey did you all consider these facts and it, yeah, and it does make you think like, oh man, did I have him all wrong? And then when finally Jose Ferrer like has his side of the story told, his his uh, not testament, whatever defense attorneys do, he tells he he questions him and like points out all these things. It's like, oh, maybe I did have it right all along. Yeah, but and, then and then again, and then the final scene where he's ripping into uh, Kiefer, where he's like, I omitted this aspect because it wouldn't help us win our case, but yeah. it's a truth nonetheless. Yeah, so, so it it's that whole thing of like, oh, you did have the right idea, but did you consider this? No, it was this, but did you consider this? And it's just up and down. That up is and where down. the movie was really good. Where in that third act, it made it, it, it with the courtroom setting, it it interrogated the first two acts of the movie and interrogated you, the member of the audience, as well as the characters' perceptions of what you've seen. Because in that scene where Bogart asks for help, the the two guys, uh, there's three of them, but uh, 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 um, I'm forgetting the main character's name. Uh, Keith. Keith and... Merrick? Merrick were on his side and like, oh, he seems like, you know, even Merrick says, that's the only way, that's the way he can say sorry. He recognizes that, that there are some leaders, they can't directly say sorry, that's the way that they say sorry, and that's good enough. Yeah, and Keith even says in the courtroom scene that he did like him at first. <laughs> yeah, 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 Keith, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, but then Kiefer in that scene is the one that makes him think that was a play. That was oh, me and my wife and my kid and my dog, all that kind of stuff. He he makes what is obviously from Bogart's character, Quig, a manufactured apology because obviously he's a man that he can't just express himself that openly. He has to think about it and then say it. It's evident that that's what he is as a person. He most of the time plans out how he's going to say things. Yeah. And Kiefer uses that habit and that personality trait as a weakness and exploits it and makes the other two paranoid because in that initial scene they took it the way jose ferrer says at the end he was asking for help and you guys denied it and that is the truth at the end that's the truth presented but throughout the movie you take it as Bogart is loose or he's crazy or that was a manipulative tactic on his part to gain their loyalty and to not own up to his fuck up. But realistically, he was asking for their help and support because he acknowledged in the way he could that he didn't do a good job and he needs the support of his crew and he needs the people who know this ship better than him 
to help him and they refuse to do so at the first sign of trouble. That's literally the first moment of trouble the crew does not help him. Mm. And they will never help him again throughout the entire movie. So, yeah, it, it, it's a complex... And this is the thing that works about the movie, not the, my mother is at the dock waiting for me, but my girlfriend's there too. <laughs> that great plot, yeah. That would have... Plot. Just stops happening <laughs> at a certain point. Because... To get into that big discussion about that, since we're cracking that open, how do you feel about Queek? Do you think he was insane? Do you think he was truly unfit for duty? Or do you think they 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 didn't support him and it drove him? Yeah, that's that's a really complicated question. Because like I said, it, it does go up and down, up and down. And if you see Jose Ferrer's, you know, final scene where that's the final time we talk about Queek as being you know, the elevation again, ending on an elevation, you mm-hmm. do kind of get this idea of like, oh, maybe he was, you know, just doing his best. He was fine. Um, but it was, it, for me, it was undeniable that this guy, you know, he's had his run. He has mm-hmm. in the past done well, and he's just been in this job too long and he's, you know, not, he's not working well with the crew. So, even though I don't think, you know, he's an awful guy or anything like that, I do think that he was unfit for duty. But unfit enough to not garner the support of all of those around him at the first sign of trouble? Because that's what, that's what happened. Mm. The, the, like, the, one, the first thing he did wrong, they immediately turned on him. Yeah, maybe just not for that crew, like he was wrong for that crew. Yeah, or that crew were too comfortable with the non-Navy way because that's what the that's previous captain yeah. mentioned. He's like, boys, I've got to be a real Navy captain now. I've been on the cane too long. Mm. And that's the thing. Like, In a way, that previous captain set this one up for failure. Yeah, as the film goes on and you get to know this crew a little bit better and you know you sympathize with them, I guess you do kind of forget the real emphasis at the beginning where it was like, oh, these guys, you know, they're on this, you know, joke of a ship that barely does anything and they're comfortable in that environment. It, it almost feels like because Humphrey Bogart elevated them a little bit, mm-hmm. you kind of take them a bit more seriously and kind of stop focusing on that yeah, earlier bit. But they were comfortable and he took them out of that comfort zone mm. and he wasn't immaculately perfect. So fuck him. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's a really complex thing where no one is perfect, no one is completely awful. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. I think personally, yes, Bogart, Quig was in the service too long, he had been shaken up, but realistically, the Navy knew that he had been shaken from his previous duties and put him in a cushier position. That is what the cane is. The cane isn't one of these big ships he used to serve on, it's a smaller vessel, it's got less responsibilities... Isn't that the wise choice to do? This guy's clearly not fit for service doing the previous jobs he's been doing, but he's clearly still fit enough to be in the Navy because he's a valuable asset. Jose Ferrer says it at the end. This this is the man who we build our careers off of. This was the man before us. You know, This is the guy watching the nation when we were not even considering being in the Navy. And realistically, it's kind of that thing of, he is a very super experienced naval officer, and he comes onto a ship that 
is a much cushier position, and he tries to elevate it to being a proper naval vessel. And all of those people involved, even the young Keith, who's kind of grown comfortable with how lax it is, buck back against his trying to change it. Mm. But he fucks up. But I think it's very complex because that scene where he asks for their help, they do reject him. And any other time he tries to garner assistance from them, they reject him. So how's he supposed to win in any way, shape or form? Like, how's he ever supposed to be fit for duty if in a team player environment? Because that's the part of the military naval experience is he says it being captain's a lonely job. Mm. And it's going to be a definitely lonely job when your entire crew isolates you out. Yeah, as the not, guy. and not just the captain, but like the old guard, as you said, mm. you know, working with the new guard. I think that they failed him. He failed them, but they definitely failed him because once you start nicknaming him and singing songs and making fun of him and completely disregarding things he wants or says, and as unreal and as uh, uh, unbearable as his demands are, they are those things that they mention in the movie when they try to go to the Admiral. I love that scene. When they're on the big aircraft carrier and they want to go to the Admiral, and then Fred McMurray realizes they don't have enough because on paper and realistically, everything Queeg has asked for has been traditional military, traditional mm. naval fare. And didn't that make you question the state of things when that came up in a way? Yeah, especially because that character is like the one who's so sure about everything and he's the one that's backing off. Yeah, because he wants to save his own skin. Mm. But it does make you question. Yeah, there was a really weird thing of like, oh, are they objectively doing the wrong thing? Or is this a revelation that this guy who seems to be in charge is like, is this scene specifically existing to bring down this character specifically, not their cause? Yeah, and of course, Queeg makes mistakes and does things badly, but they decide that the chain of command now is that they have to punish him instead of the I higher up. Like, it's so bizarre how their hierarchy begins to work after a certain while on the ship because they just don't respect him anymore. That they basically start making decisions outside of what he wants oh, when the movie happened. <laughs> I felt for him. Like, what the fuck's this? Like, oh, so you said you didn't want to watch any more westerns, so I just decided not to invite you anymore. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> maybe, maybe don't do that. <laughs> I'm the fucking captain. It's a sign of disrespect. I, I nodded along. I was like, yep, that's very disrespectful. <laughs> on a military, on a naval vessel, that's really fucking disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Because I think, would you not agree? That as well, the movie utilizes us not being naval or military people to garner our sympathy for our main characters because the demands that Quig asks for seem so harsh because we aren't a part of that environment. But then the film says succinctly throughout that these are just normal demands that people would ask for in these type of environments. For sure. When they have that line in the courtroom scenes where... Um, I forget what the exact line is, but they mention like, uh, we will proceed with this line of questioning with the proper respect that you need. It did kind of ring as a sort of like, oh yeah, the hierarchy, you have to respect it, blah, blah, blah. But then when you consider the rest of the film, there is a sort of objective necessity to that respect because Mm -hmm. you need things to run. 
Yeah. Um, and again, like a lot of the things we're talking about here, I'm relating to like the teaching profession. It's like, you know, the teacher has to run the classroom, has to make sure that people are listening. You're not talking over them because then they'll, you know, just respect you less. You need to have some level of objective authority, objective uh, obligation to show respect to someone so that everything can run smoothly. It is a team effort kind of thing. Here's another question. Do you think this event, this mutiny or Quig's failure as a commanding officer would have happened if Kiefer wasn't there? Um... Because he was the one stoking the flames throughout the whole entire movie. Yeah, that's kind of what the climax was saying. Um, again, since I've only seen this film once, maybe refresh my memory. But like, we had the the apology scene, like the work mm-hmm. with me scene, and then Kiefer t- makes the mm-hmm. two other guys turn on them. How how were those two guys before that scene exactly? Could you refresh they my liked, memory? They liked Queeg. Yeah. Okay. Well, if they liked Quig, then yeah, probably they would have. They thought he was a bit harsh, but they liked mm. him. Um, Keith more so than Merrick. Yeah, because like... Keith was you know kind of new guy to the whole but Navy. Miracle thing of like, I swear on the Bible, if you start talking this shit again, I'm going to report you directly. The captain says what you need to know. That guy was about, and he's the one who mutinies. That guy was about duty and honor and being a good naval officer. That's what he was about. It doesn't matter if he personally liked Quig or not. That was his stance of, I don't have to personally like the man. Yeah, I guess it just all goes back to that whole uh, audience perception where you might forget details from earlier. Like, when it was all brought up, they're like, Kiefer, you're the one that set all this off. Mm-hmm. It was this kind of big thing of like, oh yeah, that is true. It, it was all because of Kiefer. Here's another example that I think is very interesting. Mm. The old Yellowstone song. Mm-hmm. Who's one of the guys singing along? It's Kiefer. And who's the guy who, once the one tells him to stop singing that and then walks away, who's the guy that says, God, come on. It's Kiefer. Kiefer's there constantly being like, come on. He's he's always stoking the the flames of uh, disparity and uh, like to just be disloyal in a way. Um, I do personally love that although he has a clear anger towards the crew, Queeg still thinks that they're good officers. <laughs> he's, he's like, they're good officers, they just need to work harder, and that bites him in the ass when it comes to the trial, because like, here, read your thing. He was actually a nicer commanding officer when it came to that than the previous guy. <laughs> Again, that line is just so teacher-like, they're good kids, but they just need to work. <laughs> yeah, right? And but isn't that funny? Like in the courtroom scene when he has to read and he mumbles it, it's like, I can't hear you, which was very childlike in itself. He wrote nice things about them because he just genuinely believed like they just need to work a little bit harder. And then he notices they're trying. Mm. While the previous captain chewed chewed Keith out a little bit more in a, in a nice way as well, but kind of like he fucked up. Uh, yeah, yeah, he had, but he had that whole thing at the end of like, he'll be good once he gets his act straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quig didn't even need to put that down. He's just like, they got, they, they, they're getting there. They're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> and that bites them real good. We've got to talk about the courtroom scene. How did you feel about that? About breaking breaking Quig? It's probably what the movie's remembered for. I mean, they talk about it in the trivia. That performance in the courtroom from Humphrey Bogart, it rides, it rides a gambit of acting. 
I think even before that, the entire the, the entire courtroom thing is pretty well handled because before mm. we see Quig, it's all talking about Quig, and you mm-hmm. do have all of those high points of, you know, the Jose Ferrer is going to be heard later. Mm-hmm. We're now hearing from the prosecution who are completely hundred percent building up Quig and making you question things. And you haven't seen Quig in a while now. We haven't seen him in a while, and. As much as this courtroom scene doesn't take up a huge chunk of the film, again, it might be the last fifth, last sixth of the film, um, it doesn't feel like any moment is wasted. It, it's giving you point, 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 and you, the audience, after every point, are think, 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 think. I, I even love when Jose Ferrer's hired, when he takes the job. Mm. That that builds the tension, too, of the trial. Yeah, like this guy who's on your side sees huge merit to the other side immediately. Well, he, he takes it because it will be an interesting challenge, but he hates you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, when we do get uh, Queek to come in and Jose Ferrer to give his side, uh, not testament, cross-examination, whatever mm-hmm. the term is. Um, that's Coming from the guy who plays all the Ace Attorney games, he doesn't know what it is. It's it's different in a military context, but yeah, um, yeah. Uh, when Jose Ferrer yeah, gives yeah, his side, yes, d- despite the fact that we've been so strongly being questioned about all these things, they are just as quickly being undermined by other points, and it's <laughs> it's just this really interesting roller coaster ride. Um, and then what, the thing that you were bringing up, we have the Humphrey Bogart performance where. He's defending himself and just breaking down, and there's a point where he just realizes everything that's happening. It's tragic, man. Mm. You feel so fucking sorry for him. But it's perfectly done because beforehand, you're feeling flustered because you're watching a crazy man. But we understand why he's crazy, because they fucking tricked him with the strawberries, but then he lied about it, because he got told the information, and he still did it anyway, so he's still fucked up. Yeah, yeah. But he's trying to play it off like, no, there was a key, because I don't want to admit that I did something wrong, because I'm a good captain. (laughs) Damn it. And here's the thing, right? We're talking about it. Any other actor, any other actor could have dropped the ball during the scene because the scene is the dramatic high point of the movie and all of the dialogue is about strawberries. Inherently funny. That's very funny. Mm. Like you said, this strawberry incident. Very funny. But Bogart hits it perfectly and I never laugh at the fact that he's rambling about strawberries. I knew they stole those strawberries. When that moment when uh, Jose Ferrer says we can get the guy from San Diego to come here and that cutaway, like quick cut back to Humphrey Bogart is a much tighter shot and you see his eyes open up it's like you don't need to do that because I know he's going to ruin me in this situation so you don't need to do that mm. you feel so on edge because you're watching a man un- be undone by all of his poor choices but also the choices of all those around him you know that his career is ruined after this, uh, basically. Mm. And you know that everyone thinks he's insane. And it makes you feel sorry for him. Because you have watched the movie. You have thought yourself that he is insane. But then the movie has made you question it. And made you realize that maybe people like Fred McMurray's character has wound him up. Mm. To a degree where he shouldn't be where he is. Yeah, it's making you think like, oh, was this all true? Or was it not true? Or was it just overblown? Yeah, and just Bogart retreating into himself again, mm. grabbing out the metal balls and the trial just ending with everyone looking shocked and 
at each other like an oh my god and you just hear them clanking against each other and that's it that's the last time we see bogart in the movie yeah well there's only like two scenes after that but yeah it's the last time we see him yeah but like you don't see him walk out of there you don't that's it he's gone yeah they, they, they don't even talk about like what happens next for him in any way it's just you talking just, it's just talking about the past and the next scene and then the final scene's happy ending well jose ferrer talks about it in, in the way of i had to torpedo him and he's gone now that's it for yeah that's what i'm saying the, you, any other mention of him after that yeah. scene is what's already happened yeah, not we, what's we, next we destroyed him and you know what that means he's 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 done yeah uh which man you feel so fucking sorry for him, and that's it. He's gone. He's done. Queeg is a legendary character in the TV show Red Dwarf. There's an episode where the ship's computer gets taken over by a new ship's computer program that's much more strict, and his name is Queeg, and he's great in that he's played by a bold black man who's got an amazing voice. <laughs> and uh, in a funny little joke, it's one of my favorite jokes, there's the hologram Rimmer. He likes to exercise, even though it's a hologram. He likes to do runs around the ship, and Queeg's, Queeg can control him because he's a part of the ship's programming. And he makes him run until he faints. <laughs> but he, since he's a hologram, he's still running. So you see the actor who's like, I think I'm going to faint. And then he just goes, Ugh, and he, his head goes limp, but he's still running at full speed. And it's like his head <laughs> flopping around while he's unconscious. One of the greatest gags ever. But Queeg, he's done, he's dusted. We have all of our other characters. I still stand by this. How do you think the movie would be if uh, the guy who does Mutineer was the main character instead of Keith? Because I found him a much more compelling character. I found his conflict of betraying his captain or going with what Kiefer says a far more dramatic thing to follow than Keith who was just kind of there to... Yeah, Keith, despite the fact that the film opens on Keith and we follow him for a lot of it, especially before Queeg enters the film, mm-hmm. that's like 26 minutes, he does just exist as kind of the perspective character, like the audience surrogate in yeah. a way. Like he has the, and you even laughed at this when I brought it up earlier, the plot with his mother and his girlfriend, fiance, mm. which, yeah, just like Heart and Soul last week, not the best part of the film. Oh, but much, um, much worse than in Han Souls. Like, in Han Souls, there's a point to that. There is, yes. It does tie into the main plot. Um, it's the heart part, yeah. The heart part. <laughs> um, yeah, he he kind of just exists as the perspective character for the audience to be introduced to this world to. And he does follow along with the other two characters who they are the diametric opposites. You know, this is the mm. guy who doesn't like the captain. This is the guy who wants to follow the rules. It's like order mm. versus chaos happening here, um, black and white. Um, it, it does feel like those two characters are ma- like the the guy, the Merrick's the one who's on trial. Yeah. It's it's not the guy that we're saying should be the main character or the guy who is the main character. No. It's, it's these two characters are really the ones that are, you know, central to this story. And Keith is just along for the ride as the surrogate. I like how he keep calling him Jose Ferrer because I don't remember the character's name off the top of my head if we do find out his name, but he mentions it at the very end. You will for- he will forever be remembered as a mutineer. You will be a successful rider and you Keith get to go on. And that says so much about the fucking character of Keith. I would rather follow the guy who chose reluctantly to forever be remembered as the first mutineer in the U.S. Navy. Wouldn't you? 
Wouldn't that be a far better character to follow in yeah, this movie? And yeah, also Merrick, the, right? Yeah, and yeah. also his performance was great. Mm-hmm. I felt so sorry for him throughout the whole entire movie, and I never felt it was contrived when he made the decision. Yeah. You could see the weight of it. But Keith? Sorry, Robert Francis, <laughs> you were just a guy. Yeah. Pretty skinny, blonde guy. While Van Johnson, he... You know, he used his real scars on his face. That was a neat touch. I, I think you read that information in trivia. Yep, yep. You saw the frustration because also he did a neat little acting touch of, with the previous captain. He still had a strained relationship with that captain too. It wasn't like they were buddy, 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 buddy. It was also like I kind of acknowledge that he's not the best captain either, but I like him because he's good. He's a good man still. Mm-hmm. He would have been a great character. And also, we don't know what happens to him after. No, that's true. We don't. Jose Ferrer's just like, you. he'll forever be known as the mut- yeah, we, mutineer. That's we know, it. We know what happened to Keith. Yeah, yeah. we know what happened to Keith. Yeah. And it's so annoying that he gets a happy ending where he gets to be with the old captain. The old captain's like, hey, Keith. I, mean, I, I like seeing that captain again. I thought, like, on paper, I think that's an interesting touch of having a captain that you didn't respect at the beginning, like the, our main character didn't respect then going through an ordeal that makes you realize that that the before times of that previous captain was wasn't actually that bad, and then at the end being able to see that old captain again and have an appreciation for who they were. But I don't really care about Keith. Mm. I thought this movie would be so much better if we actually followed the guy who made the mutiny happen, not the guy who just agreed for the mutiny to happen. It's- yeah, the the or the either of the two guys who made it happen. I mean, you can't have Kiefer be the main character, right? He's too slimy. Yeah, especially for this era of Hollywood where you have to have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. I guess, Yeah, I guess that's why Keith is the main character, because he's the easiest one to give a happy ending to. Yeah, that's it. You have to make it a happy ending, which I don't think... Yeah, we, we talked about this with Streetcar Named Desire, too, where that had a weirdly uplifting, like, I'm never coming back to this house again. Yeah, it's an unfortunate product of the times. Can we talk about Fred McMurray as Kiefer a little bit more? What did you think of him throughout the movie? Because he's a character that starts to change mm. as you go along. Well, he's yeah. kind of charming to begin with. He's like the nice guy. Mm, yeah, he's and he's got that educated quality of referring to literature and stuff like that. He has funny quips. Funny quips. Yeah, considering the fact that we are along on this ride and we're kind of with the crew and thinking like, oh, Queeb, he's, he's incompetent or he's not good. Um, and him being kind of in charge of that, I was along for the ride with him for most of the way through. And then obviously when we had the big airship, ca- airship, Final Air, Fantasy, Air, aircraft yeah. carrier scene where he like, he backed out all of a sudden there, that was like a huge turn of like, oh, what? You were so mm. sure of yourself. Uh, is this like the revelation that you're, you know, spineless or something? Like it was weird. And then it makes you realize, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. He never personally ever confronts Queek. With any of this stuff, he always refer he always defers it to other people. That sounds right, yeah. He would mock Queeg in front of his face. Is it Queeg or Queeb? Queeg. Queeg, okay. He would mock Queeg in front of his face, like when Queeg's saying all this stuff about this and he 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 laughs or starts choking, he's like, Oh sorry, the it the smoke went down the wrong pipe. Mm. That type of thing. He would do that, but never would he actually do the things that he says because also it's a chain of command. He doesn't want to get personally chewed out by Queeg. He'll give it to the other guy. Let's go to the Admiral instead. Actually, I don't want to go to the Admiral because actually I might get in trouble. And then when Jose Ferrer 
lets him, it was him who lets him know. By the way, his name is Barney Greenwald. No, it isn't. He doesn't look like a Barney Greenwald. <laughs> well, that's why they call him Greenwald. <laughs> and he broke his hand before we're doing the movie, so it's in a cast for no real reason in the film, but in real life you know why. But but Barney Greenwald explained... Attorney Barney Greenwald. <laughs> Jose Ferrer. Yeah, yeah, Miguel Ferrer's dad. So he explains there's that article in the rules where basically you can get in trouble too for having colluded to mutiny even though you personally didn't do it I and loved, that's when fred mcmurray really changes gears i love the touch that that article is like one or two after the one that he kept <laughs> emphasizing so it's he like didn't you didn't read further you didn't it's like you have to learn this you have to know it by heart you didn't look a few pages later mate <laughs> yeah yeah i love the line uh when he has to leave is like the atmosphere is getting thick in here that's what fred <laughs> that's, mcmurray says such a writer line <laughs> But it's such a line he would say because he's a writer. Yeah, that's what I mean. I loved when that also, wasn't a yeah that wasn't a criticism. You, it's because he is a writer. Did you note down that he really turned on Queeg when Queeg took his typewriter away? Because Queeg says <laughs> no more writing your little books on this ship. We're gonna have to take that typewriter away, and that is really when Fred McMurray gets into full oh. gear of I'm against you if, now, even <laughs> more so. If I watch this film, I'm definitely gonna notice it now because I I don't really remember that. <sighs> Have you seen him before in movies, Fred McMurray? I can't remember when you did when we in university studied film noir for a play we did. Did you watch any film noirs in preparation? Because I can't remember if you watched the one he was in. I watched one film, but I cannot remember the name. I just remember the one line that I wrote down that people liked from the film. I can't remember if you watched Double Indemnity, which is a film with him in it, but. He's a very interesting actor. When I go home, I'm going to check what the name of the film was that I watched. He was a very interesting actor because he frustrates me to tears. I have seen him give some of the best performances I've ever seen from actors of this year. And I think he's fucking great in this movie. Like, he's almost as good as Bogart Mm -hmm. to me. When he gets the... When he gets yelled at at the end of the movie and he says, no, 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 you tell the story. You're telling it much better. So good. He's so slimy. But he would play... Fucking creeps and slime balls and film noir roles every now and then. They weren't the majority of his career. He was in Double Indemnity. He was in The Apartment with Jack Lemon, a great film, great, great film. He was in this. There's a handful of roles that us movie lovers, cinephiles, love Fred McMurray for because he was a piece of shit in them. And he was really good at playing slimy and really good at it. But it was only a very small fraction because he was a deeply, deeply spiritual person. I think a very Christian man. Mm -hmm. And I think after the apartment, he said, I can no longer play any of these type of characters because they go against my moral values. So he swore off ever portraying the side of himself as an actor that was the best side of his acting. Right. Because he personally felt uncomfortable with playing slime balls because in the apartment he is a fucking piece of shit he's he's the sleazy boss of this place who's sleeping with the girl who runs the elevator and always promising he's going to leave his wife but never does and basically drives that character to commit suicide over him that kind of sleaze he's like i can't do that but he is in a very important disney movie mm-hmm. shaggy dog He's the original Shaggy Dog. Oh, so he's the pro- the origin of what Tim Allen was then. Yes. 
the he, predecessor. He's the original The Shaggy Dog, and he was in the sitcom My Three Sons, which mm-hmm. is the icon- iconic American good dad. He's the guy... You may know this iconic image, Bartek, but he's the he's the father of the old sitcom where he wears the cardigan and smokes that pipe and yeah. has a, that's him. <laughs> yeah, that's Fred McMurray. Before you told me what the iconic image was, I'm like, okay, it's going to be some sort of sitcom dad archetype, and there it is. <laughs> and, and that's what he's known for more. But what decade was that show? Sixties. Okay, yeah, that sounds right. I want to say maybe late fifties, but here he's such a piece of shit. Mm. I love it. I wish he, I I mean, you know, he made his decisions. He had a thriving career after this where he played good, nice people. But I love what a piece of, he's almost like a Cats 22 character in this movie. Like he feels like a a character that would belong in the world of Cats 22. He's always got a scheme going on. (laughs) He's always got a secret agenda. He's got like 15 things going on at the same time. Piece of shit. Loved him, though. And I loved how he got chewed out at the end. Uh, <laughs> the champagne to the face. That was great, too. How did you feel about uh, that scene where after the big trial, and we've just seen Humphrey Bogart get absolutely decimated in the courtroom by himself, basically, it hard cuts to them celebrating and drinking and partying and celebrating that they just destroyed a man. Hmm. Did you have that weird feeling before Jose Ferrer came in to call them out for having done, like, to call the scene out for being this? Did you naturally have that yourself, or did you just take it on the chin as it went? Um, Because I was still kind of on the side of, you know, him not being fit for duty, I I didn't take it as, you know, disgustingly as probably I should have, because Mm. it is, you know, such a serious thing that gets followed up with celebration. Um, so when, uh, Jose Ferrer, who, we have to call him Barney now, Ryan. Barney Gumble. <laughs> when- <laughs> or Barney Rubble. Take your pick. Both are fun. Um. Stinson. Hmm? Stinson from How I Met Your Mother. Barney Stinson. Oh, yeah. I've seen one episode of that. I remember his name was Legend Dairy. <laughs> That's his catch, one of his many catchphrases. Okay, the episode I saw was one where they were trying to, you know, stop doing iconic things and, yeah. or something like that. Um, yeah, when when Barney came in and... <laughs> okay, now I'm finding it funny. Uh, when Attorney Greenwald came in and... You Barney know, Greenwald. <laughs> Barney Greenwald came in. <laughs> He's not a Barney. When Albert's dad came in and he started... <laughs> when that character played by that actor, came in and started telling them off, I was kind of still on their side of, like, oh, on their side in the sense of, like, I'm being told off as well mm-hmm. and seeing his points. Um, but still kind of feeling like because the it felt like things were missing, you know, we talked about that way earlier when we were focusing on negatives, there was this kind of sense of, like, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I feel like this is a bit biased. And then when I read the trivia, I'm like, okay, there, there would have been some stronger emotions here where you know, the World War Two was a lot more important to this guy than this film feels World War Two is important. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have made it hit a lot harder. But still it still had that whole thing of me questioning things even mm-hmm. after the trial is over, which the trial was the climax of the up and down roller coaster. I know you haven't seen too many films from this era in time, but isn't it curious that a film from all of these decades ago, even though it's still got the Hollywood isms 
still manages to rile up all of these ambiguities and questions and was this right and was that right? The fact that I keep referring to Burning, which that was um, that's a modern film that you know was so complex and amazing, yeah. That I can and I'm comparing that film to this film. It, it is quite impressive. Like honestly, when I was on the bus on the way here, I was actually wondering how much we'd get out of talking about this film. But yeah, I honestly thought you were going to come in and. I thought you weren't going to like this very much. I was watching it, and I'm like, oh, maybe this is too corny for mm. him to enjoy. But then Bogart would just fucking chew <laughs> that scenery. I love his expressions, Bogart, when he would lose it. And he would, like, grip onto things, like, almost like a frightened child. Like, in the typhoon, and he's, like, completely gone. Mm. Completely glazed over, and he's off in his own world. Or even little touches of... He's on. He's not in the control room or whatever that room's called. He's not on the deck. He's he's on elsewhere on the boat making, not making command decisions, mm. and then coming in when it's not happening his way, and then barking and then leaving again. Such an interesting portrayal. Yeah, a trivia point that I kept reading because I looked at a bunch of different websites for trivia, and they would always bring up Humphrey Bogart was twenty five years older than his character. I think you can go further and say that the character felt 25 years older than he looked because he was just so frail and yeah. weak. And this, obviously, one of the trivia facts was uh, he had cancer, yet not not diagnosed at this yeah. point. Um, That's one thing I always f- didn't know, well, that I never really knew about Humphrey Bogart. I was like, when did he die for such an iconic guy? And it was, yeah, mid to late 50s. Mid to late 50s. His last film, I do believe it's his last, The Harder They Fall. Mm. Great film. He still made really great films in his later part of his life. I think he credits this as uh, one of his final good films, one of the final ones he enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I think he still made plenty of great films right up to the end. Uh, I thought the guy, for a guy whose characteristics are so 1930s and 40s, he still managed to make really interesting projects in the 50s. And it's interesting that the character that we're talking about now is an old guard character, considering mm. the 30s and 40s might have been old guard at that point. And it's so funny because Humphrey Bogart in the 30s, in the Maltese Falcon, came across like an old guy. And in Casablanca, he comes across like an old guy. He's always come across as like this world-weary guy. I mean, that's part of the charm of uh, Casablanca, isn't it? That he's this old, world-weary guy who's fought in all these other wars before, or, like, traded guns and all all this stuff. Uh, I think it was in the 50s. Yes, it has to be, because it's in color. African Queen. He did the African Queen, which I think you would love. You've mentioned that before, but I can't remember what you said about it. You love the African Queen. It's a romance story, kind of. Him and Catherine Hepburn... The weirdest double pairing on a little dinghy boat. He's African queen going down the river and he has to watch out for Germans and stuff. It's it's a great film. Mm. It's one of the best. It's he's an iconically great film. He's he's perfect in it. And he's far more blue collar in that and like has a five o'clock shadow and he's he's gross. <laughs> He's wonderful. He's always drinking booze because he's like, can't drink the water; it'll make you sick. Got to drink yeah. vodka. <laughs> not, not to, uh, not to bring the tone down, but when we're talking about actor deaths, the other really, really sad one. As much as we've criticised him here, the guy that played Keith, mm. he was like not even twenty-five at this point, and he died like 
a year later or something in a tr- mm. in a plane crash. Yeah, it's just this really weird thing. Like reading up about this guy, he looks so young in this. He's got his whole career ahead of him. Yeah, they were building him up, and then he's just gone. And now it's seventy six years later, and you know it, he could have had all that time to become a big Hollywood name. Yeah, and. There's uh, many actors like that back then. Obviously, yeah. ones who are bigger than him, like James Dean, for instance. Obviously, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a there's a few like that. I mean, there was at least a little bit of niceness in the sense that, like, we have the internet now. He's got a Wikipedia page. We have records about you know what he was like back we then. We can access his movies. Yeah, he he does still exist in pop culture through that sense. But yeah, just really sad that he never got to live to, you know, be as old as the guy that wrote the book. To 2019. That's crazy, that guy. Yeah. Interesting. But I think that's all I have to say about the Kane Mutiny. I think it's a really good movie that could have been better. Yeah, yeah. But it's a thing of, I want it to be redone, but at the same time, I who do you cast as Queeg now that Humphrey Bogart's done it? It's that thing of, who would you cast? Like, realistically, let's play this game. We haven't done this in a while. Oh, boy. <laughs> Adam Sandler. <laughs> okay, well, Ryan, if you start with the perfect option, how are we going to find the second best option? Kevin James. How are we going to find the third best? Oh, just go through all the happy medicine people. <laughs> David Spade. I was about to say, you like David Spade, he could do it. Paul Giamatti. <laughs> I don't know who you'd actually cast as the new Queeg. I can't think of it. I honestly can't. It's too difficult. Mm. It's too... It's. Willem Dafoe? He could do it. Yeah, someone on the older end, for sure. Uh, even though Humphrey Bogart is apparently too old for this role. <laughs> we we want to go old anyway. Well, Ryan, he died a few years later, and, you know, last few years of life, that sounds old to me. Yeah. Well, but then you talk about But who do Richard we cast Francis? as May Win? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really important, so we have to think of someone. I got it. Sam Jackson. Um... <laughs> Someone who's done stuff. Uh, yeah. No, wait, wait, no, no, no. <laughs> Someone who hasn't done stuff like may win at this time. I was going to make it. Uh, well, I, well, that was a setup to me listing someone who hasn't done stuff, but I couldn't think of someone. I don't know. Who was in Fifty Shades of Grey? Someone from there. Dakota Johnson has gone on to do some good projects, at least. But okay. she could do it. Mm. She's not a singing lady that I'm aware of. Mm. Give it to Gaga. Lady. Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. We have May Win. Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga's had a nomination for an Oscar. Yes. So that's a that's a precedent. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Make Bradley Cooper queeg. <laughs> Bradley Cooper, star of such hit films as Failure to Launch. Yeah, yeah. And and make Keith a really, really old actor, just to contrast. Christopher Plummer. <laughs> Jack Nicholson. <sighs> I'm Keith. Come here, Lady Gaga. And every now and then, for no real reason, inexplicably. When you cut to Keith and in one shot, it will be Christian Slater and then cut back and it's still Jake <laughs> And wh- whoever you cast as his mum has to be at least nine years younger than him. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you do, um, you cast the chick who played Sam Jackson's mum in Unbreakable. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, make it someone black. That'd be cool. <laughs> and in class, it was even harder. Because <laughs> it's right. Oh, that's it. We both recommend the Kane Mutiny, I think. It's interesting, it's flawed, but worth seeing. So, what is the movie you will be recommending for the next episode? Well, Ryan, um, you mentioned earlier in this episode that uh, you you were hoping this film would be in black and white, or you would have liked to have seen it in black and white, so I'm picking a black and white film. 
Um, and we're going from World War Two to World Cold War to what? Cold War. Okay. Um, and only ten years later, nineteen sixty-four, I want to pick Doctor Strangelove or How uh, I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. A classic. Going back to some Kubrick. Kubrick and Peter Sellers. I was, you know, yeah, yeah, Peter Sellers. We haven't had him in a while. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if we've had anyone else from this movie. Maybe. Uh, have we had James L. Jones? <sighs> we must have. Yeah. Have we had Slim Pickens? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I've only seen this film once before, so well, we'll it's not see fresh. how it holds up for you. Yeah. No, no, it's a fresh movie according to Rotten Tomatoes. Ah, yes. <laughs> That's it. So, Doctor Strange Love or How I Stopped to Le- <laughs> <laughs> or how I or how, how I, I learned, learned to, to stop, stop worrying and, and love the bomb. bomb. Of course, of course, of course. With George C. Scott being very angry that this was his performance <laughs> that, is, that yeah. was given in the movie. That's a fun bit of trivia. Legendary actor George C. Scott, who's pissed off that this was his performance <laughs> given in the film. And yet it's one of my favorite performances in the movie. <laughs> So that is that. So make sure there's no fighting in the war room, gentlemen. And we'll be talking about that next time. You can find us on those social medias of Facebook and Twitter, Spit and Polished Presents. You can email us at spitandpolished at gmail.com with your questions, queries, thoughts, and concerns, or recommendations for movies to cover in the future. Because Which Ryan will take credit for. Yeah. Just like in this episode. I am my parents. So, yeah. And I'm your mum. Is that a your mum joke? Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. I'm. <laughs> that's a your mum statement, more like. That's it from me, Bartek's mother. And me, uh, how did I introduce myself? Counterfeit Bartek? No, no, you were, you were originally generic Bartek. Generic. And I said you're off-brand Bartek. Generic off-brand Bartek. Not even just off-brand or not just generic. <laughs> no, no, now you're counterfeit Bartek. <laughs> I'm I'm fake crash. Woo! <laughs>